It's the Bomber Brothers Podcast with Ryan and Sean Chichester. Swung on and driven to deep left. Toward the line, she is gone. Aaron Judge lined one right down the line. Swung on and lined to right center field. It is a base hit. Grounding third, scoring kind of from left off. And the Yankees win the ball game with two in the bottom of the ninth. Hit in the air to left center. It is high. It is far. It is gone. It's a grand slam. Oh, a Stantonian home run. Talking all things Yankees baseball. Hey everybody, we got another bonus edition of the Bomber Brothers podcast and Sweeney Murdy is back. You saw his face once again in the last most recent two episodes of The Captain, which we're going to be reacting to and breaking down right now. The next two episodes, parts five and six, played on Thursday night as we record here on a Friday morning. Another two great episodes that I think give us a ton to dive into from, from his... Uh, you know, role as the captain and ushering in the new era of people after the dynasty and to and the end of his career. And we had uh, the broken ankle in 2012. We had a lot of talk about, um, you know, his perceived quietness in terms of social justice issues, which uh, they shined a light on there. So plenty of good stuff in this episode. So just, I guess, initial reactions. We can start with, with you, Sweeney. Um, yeah, just other, this was probably the most, um, you know, if you saw the, the, both of the episodes, it's probably the most personal you got with Derek Jeter because you saw uh, a little bit more about his, you know, really just how he deals with his, with his own attitudes toward, toward race and what he does community wise and things like that with, um, with, that aspect to it, but also like his own, you saw like how he met his wife and, and what she was going through while he was finishing out his playing career and talking about how closed off he was until he was through with that. I thought you, you just got a little bit more of a, a personal look at things. And, you know, these are, these are things that he just doesn't like to publicly address. So you're seeing him talk about things like that for the first time. You know, he, he gives you little windows. I just remember, I always remember like, you know, going up to his locker, like he would, he would open the window a little bit into different aspects of his life, but would close it pretty quickly. Um, and, um, and this is just a deeper look into things like that. Yeah. I, I kind of agree. I, I like that. We got a, a glimpse into pieces of, of, Derek's life that we've never seen before, but I also thought it was still very controlled in terms of what what he wanted to to reveal. And uh, I mean, I found it fascinating to to hear about how he dealt with you know not only some of the race stuff, but you know he he made the point like you know look what happened to Colin Kaepernick like exactly. why you know it's just like why are you putting that on on him like well know. I mean listen to it to a larger degree it's you know we would like them to athletes to speak about certain things but only if they they we agree with what they say you know once once they start saying things that we don't agree with then we start skewering them for it and it's really you know and i mean that we as in general like everybody you know you 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 just like people to uh it, it's it's really hard to accept what they're saying and that's when you get the shut up and dribble crowd you know when you don't agree with what they're saying well you you can't really have it that way you know if you want if we wanted to try to bait 
all the athletes into saying certain things or speaking their mind about certain things, we have to be prepared for the fact that we don't agree many times with what they're saying, or sometimes we do, whatever it is. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that um, uh, I, I think, you know, there are athletes who are savvy enough to figure out where and when that they would like to do it. But you're right. I, um, you know, Colin Kaepernick paid a price for it. And uh, I think that's a lesson that so many athletes have, have taken to heart. And, you know, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, that's that's unfortunately that's a consequence uh, that uh, of what he did. Um, I think I think a lot of athletes have paid attention to that. And it's especially unique with baseball. I think Howard Bryant was interviewed a lot for for this episode, and he had some really good insight into how you know. The, the baseball crowd is largely, you know, white, white fans, white writers, white owners is what he was saying. And he actually did a really good job highlighting how, you know, the media sometimes portrayed different players when he, in his Ricky Henderson biography, which came out, which just came out earlier this year. So I think you could understand why some players, including Jeter, were, like Sean said, very controlled about what he does and doesn't talk about. I mean, he said in this biography that he set some boundaries pretty quickly about what he would and wouldn't talk about in terms of his personal life. But when it came to like social justice issues and race, he also made it clear that he also was never really asked. And there were even some media members in these episodes that said, Oh, well, you know, given who Jeter is, we figured he wouldn't really talk about this stuff. And, and Jeter was like, yeah, well, they, they never really asked, but here's the things that I do behind the scenes. And so I, I think it was interesting to kind of get a, a glimpse of that because a lot of people did, talk about how Jeter rarely addressed certain things. And just because it wasn't done publicly doesn't mean he doesn't have feelings and thoughts on it. I think if you go back to, uh, you know, let's also remember he was not an active player in 2020, which might've changed a lot of, uh, a lot of things, you know, he, he might've had to address it uh, in a certain form then. Um, but we, um, you know, we saw an episode one, I guess, was the, was when uh, Reggie Jackson, Dave Winfield, stood up together and, you know, they, you saw the the shot of them and I guess spring training in 1981 addressing this to a degree that, you know, was, you know, that's something that I, I think if you are, it's, it's naive to think that if you're Derek Jeter and you were raised uh, mixed race, that you're not growing up thinking a lot of these things along the way. And, and, you know, early in the series, you saw that, that there are, you know, just because you're not speaking out about it doesn't mean you're not aware. And I, I think it's about figuring out your time and place to to address those issues and how comfortable you are with them and what you're able to do with it. Um, so, yeah, and listen, Howard's written a lot of great books on on subjects like this. And uh, I, I've known him for you know over 20 years. So a good friend who is really an authority on on these things and really um, does speak very, uh, very eloquently about it. And I think that's an, also an interesting segue into another big part about these two episodes is, you know, Jeter kind of picked and choose when he spoke out and, and when he didn't spoke, speak out. And he was very much, he seemed at least to be very much about just, you know, playing on the field and winning. I want everything to be focused on, on winning. I don't want distractions and, I don't know. It sometimes seemed like that maybe took away from his ability to, 
uh, welcome in players in the clubhouse because he was so focused on winning and kind of expected everyone to just be on that same page. And it was, I thought it was interesting to look at how he handled the transition from the dynasty core to the new players that came in, the uh, Gary Sheffields and everyone from 2004 to, to 2007. So uh, I don't I just what were your guys' reactions to kind of, some, you know, a little bit of, I guess, self-reflection from Jeter saying maybe he could have done a better job back then in terms of welcoming those new players, especially some like Sheffield who spoke out and said they didn't really ever feel like they were welcomed into that inner circle. I, I kind of felt watching it that, you know, if you, if you, if you watch the last dance with, with Michael Jordan, which I'm not comparing the two athletes, but as a leader, one of the things Michael Jordan took upon himself was to kind of mold the team into what he needed them to be. And it seemed like Jeter was more of just the quiet lead by example type who didn't push these players in in one direction or another. He kind of just let them be and, and led by example. But I mean, I, we're not as we're not as privy as to what went on behind the scenes. But to me, it, it does speak to maybe there needed to be something a little bit more intimate in their relationships. And and when you get to 09, which that group kind of was replacing that that group that got to the first round every year and, the, and then lost. But when you get to 09, he, he says, I mean, it's, it's a little anecdote, but he says to CC, I got you. And CC said that just, you know, the knot unraveled in his stomach, but we also know from some of the great, you know, books we've had about 09, that there was more relationship building on that team. So I don't know, does that team have a different path if, if he connects more with those players? Your Sean, your comparison to last dance is interesting. I, um, I feel like the idea of Mike, you know, they're two different sports, right? Like there's one ball in yep. basketball. So if Michael Jordan wants to win, he needs everybody else to follow what he's doing with that one ball. Um, I think in baseball, it's the idea of like Derek went about leading by example and everybody else, you know, when you go take your at bat, when you go play the field, this is what you can do. It's all, it's more individual stuff. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit of a different issue, but I do remember that, and this goes back even farther. This goes back to 2002. The Yankees are down two games to one to the angels in Anaheim and get they're on the verge of elimination. And a group of reporters surrounds Derek after that game and asks about backs against the wall. And he, and they phrase the question with, uh, you've been here before. And he stops. He says, not this group. We haven't. Uh, of course he had. Of course Bernie Williams had. Of course Ori Posada had. Um, but 2002 was also Jason Giambi's first year. And Tito Martinez was no longer there. And Scott Brocious was no longer there. Um, so there were people who were instrumental in all those wins that were no longer there. And it was a clear transition then in 2002. He was quick to point that out that, uh, so that was in his mind as far back as 2002, I know. Um, and it just kept, I mean, it's kind of a natural progression. It just kind of kept going from there. Uh, so it took a little while and there, you know, um, there's no singular reason why the Yankees didn't win again in those you know nine years in between but you could start to see some of the differences there and I think you know I, I think you got as close as you're going to get to Derek 
admitting a mistake in the way he handled players coming into uh, and listen, and he was part of the other episodes more than it was this one, but Alex is a very big part of it as far as um, accepting teammates and what they can do. It's not necessarily to throw the arm around them because I, you know, I think you heard me say one of the things that, um, you know, he always said was he's not going to tell the fans not to boo somebody. Right. Uh, he never saw that as his place, but the idea that he talked about, about being, you know, just hanging out with teammates more, you know, he was not a guy, he had a very tight circle um, and he kept it that way. So I think the other players on that team, as they were coming in, felt like they never really got a chance to know Derek Jeter because it was still a tight circle of people who would, who he would hang out with. And, uh, and that's, you know, that seems to be, if there's a regret that he has, that seems to be it. And that came out last night. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I, what I felt is that it seemed like that aspect of his career seemed to be the only thing, at least so far that he said he might do different or hinted that he might do different. Uh, but then another you know big part of, of this episode was, was the contract negotiations and, and the, uh, contentious negotiations at that with with Brian Cashman and I thought it was interesting to hear Jeter talk about it in terms of you know he had no problem with the initial salary offer it was really just that he had asked for this not to be made public and then of course it was made public and everybody you know of of any of our age groups remembers how that went down I remember seeing the New York Post one morning of a photoshop of Jeter in a Red Sox uniform and it was it was pretty, pretty sickening, but, um, but yeah, I thought, I thought it was interesting to have that perspective, not just from him, but from Cashman and for him to be like, yeah, he, you know, Jeter asked me who I'd rather have. And I said, Troy Tulowitzki and Hanley Ramirez. I mean, that was pretty, that was pretty eye-opening to hear. And I'm sure for Jeter, it was as well. Yeah. And, um, like, I guess, I guess, you know, they made an initial offer that, um, you know, obviously Jeter and his camp didn't like, but, um, you know, that indicated to them, that also indicated they did want him back. It was just at their price, not his. And there was negotiation in between. Um, I, one of the things that I remember was, you know, let's, let's remember, this is the first time he's ever a free agent. Because remember, he signed his contract extension in 2000 for that started right before the 2001 season. He signed it a year before he uh, was eligible for free agency. So the first time he gets to free agency is after the 2010 season, which just happened to be one of his worst seasons. Um, and I remember you saw clips last night of him at the press conference announcing the contract. And it was, it was actually during the winter meetings, which that year happened to be in Orlando. So they announced a press conference in Tampa and everybody, all of us who were covering the winter meetings just drove across to Tampa to cover this press conference. And uh, you could tell just the iciness and you saw some of it between him and Brian Cashman at that podium as you know, one was leaving. But I remember doing, I actually did an interview with MLB network for uh, with Derek for MLB network uh, one-on-one with him right after that press conference. And I remember saying like the first question I asked him was that uh, I remember him say, I remember you saying that you had never, been a free agent before and you were curious to see how the process was going to play out so now that it's over 
what did you think of it? <laughs> kind of a loaded question. And uh, he kind of chuckled and took a minute and said, well, I, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it wasn't a fun process for him for some of the reasons that you already talked about. Um, and he really the biggest one was he didn't like that it dragged out. And I, I think the implication there was that his side kept it quiet so that somebody else on the Yankee side is who who made it public. And a lot of that was about a battle for public perception. And I'm not sure that's entirely true either. As far as who let it out, I was I, I had actually I remember asking about it at one point. And uh, and there was an implication that Jeter's side thought that um, putting the numbers out there would show that the Yankees were, you know, you know, for lack of a better phrase, lowballing him, and that the public would side with Jeter, and that was an argument between the two sides. That no, like I think if you put it out there, you're going to see that this is a fair offer. Blah blah blah. So. It ended up like both sides ended up stepping on this and ended up getting into the, uh, you know, getting it out to the public side, which it that's the part that really bothered Derek. But I think his side had a little bit of that as well, if I recall. Um, anyway, they 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 came up with a deal that was probably pretty fair for a 37, 38 and 39 year old shortstop to be. Yeah, I think. Speaking of 37, 38, 39 years old, another what I thought was an interesting part of of these two episodes was talking about uh, the core guys and how they felt they were treated by the organization in their latter years. You had Posada, you had Bernie kind of say that they didn't feel like there was um, loyalty once the team felt like they couldn't contribute anymore. And I, I don't Sean, I don't know what your thoughts were on this, but I thought it was kind of a fascinating um you know, a fascinating conflict of like, you have this team that's so built on win at all costs, championship or bus. And then the core players bought into that. And then once the team felt like that, they, that these players couldn't contribute at the same level anymore to where they could win a championship, they started looking elsewhere. So, you know, what, what is that balance with the the players and, and the front office of the guys who got you here, but are clearly not doing it at the same level anymore, yet you still share that, that goal of winning, winning a championship. I mean, as you know, I, I think, I think it was Bernie that said something along the lines of, you know, as soon as you start to age, you're not, you know, making an error or striking out because that's baseball. It's just because you're getting older. And, you know, with, with a lot of these guys, we did, we did see deterioration, but, you know, we also saw, you know, some just, and I, I think that's probably part of being an athlete is just, you have an insane belief in yourself and, and an insane confidence and you have to, in order to compete at that level, I would assume. So you're not going to, you're not going to make that choice yourself a lot of times. I mean, we saw, you know, Andy, Andy Pettit and Mariano in 2013 had solid last seasons and kind of went out on, on their own choice. But then there were guys like Bernie Posada and, and Jeter where they, you know, kind of dragged a little bit in, in their last year, year or two. And I remember that was a big thing The Tory wanted to bring Bernie back in 07, I believe in reading Joe Torrey's, uh, the, the Joe Torrey book, but they wanted Wilson Betamy. And, you know, like as a fan at the time, you're like, dude, give me another year of Bernie. He know he knows how to do it. But, um, you know, obviously some of the, some of the skills had, had, had eroded at, 
at that point, it, it's a hard balance as a fan. And, and, you know, I think we, we always kind of tend to want to root for the guys and keep the guys around that we know have won before that we have connections to. Um, but the front office does have the responsibility of trying to put the best team on the field and, and balancing that out. And I, I think, you know, a, as an athlete, it's not on you to say, you know, I think, I think Buster only made the point that maybe Jeter should have like taken himself out of the lineup or I'm sorry, moved himself down. I mean, that's a hard thing to do. If you're a confident player, I think that's on the coaching staff to, to tell you you're, you're getting, you know, you shouldn't have to volunteer that it should be kind of demanded of you in, in my opinion. And that's never comfortable. And it, it showed in, in some of these interviews. I think Sean, I think you hit a lot of that right on the head because the idea of, the confidence that athletes have is what drives them. Um, you know, the way I, the way I like to phrase it is that great players. Let me think of it really in these terms. Great players don't become great by admitting they can no longer be great. Like they always believe as you know, they, they you know, you, when you heard the exchange last night between Jeter and Joe Girardi, like they, they're always going to believe that they're that they're coming out of this. And same with Bertie Williams, who didn't want to believe that he was no longer a center fielder at, um, let's see, age 38, I guess it would have been. Um, and, you know, Brian Cashman had a job to do that was cold hearted. You know, he's not the player's friend. He's not their second father like Joe Torrey. He is the he is the cold-hearted businessman, and he has to take that approach. And Theo Epstein, you know, who you've seen in this thing too, does the same thing. I mean, think about it. as soon as the Red Sox won in 2004, Pedro Martinez is out the door, right? Um, and uh, I forget somebody else too right away. But they, you know, there was not the idea of, you know, keep them around because we love them. It's okay. What you know? What's best way to put? this roster and team together to win again. And if you look at Bernie Williams and Jorge Posada, uh, clearly there were alternatives to, uh, to them as much as they are beloved. Brian Cashman had to be, I'll take the Godfather reference that you saw Mark Feinstein make last night, which by the that way, was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was good. It was my material. I guarantee it. he said, <laughs> he, said, he, didn't say, he said there was a joke on the beat. My joke. Okay. I have the whole cast. Trust me. Um, <laughs> anyway, he, um, you know, Brian Cashman is Tom Hagen. Okay. That's, he is the cold hearted. It's not personal. It's business. And to, look at that and and understand that you as a businessman you want to get rid of a player a year too early rather than a year too late and that's an old branch ricky thing um get rid of somebody a year too early rather than a year too late and you know that becomes harder when players are locked into long-term contracts so when bernie's contract was up that he was going to come back for another one the Yankees were ready to to move on. I think they were ready to offer him a minor league invite to spring training, and you know that was that was not enough for him, and they weren't willing to go any farther uh, with that. So uh, I just think it comes down to like the confidence that these guys have. You're right; they're not going to, like the second that Derek Jeter admits that he should be batting at the bottom of the lineup, he's lost. Okay, he's you know, that tells you his confidence is gone and that he, you know, what makes him great is no longer there. So there's no point to that. Now, the 
you know, Joe Girardi probably should have been strong enough to just say, I'm going to bat you here anyway. And that's in, you know, Derek Jeter would have, would not have had uh, an option except to, except to take that. Um, if you also, if you look at, you know, look at some of the other lineups they throw out there, this is the other thing, you know, 2013 and 2014 Yankees were not a very strong team. And if you look at the rosters that, um, that filled up those two years, you know, go let, tell me how many people you want batting in the top three in that lineup. They were not very good uh, offensive teams. They had a lot, they had some name players, but some that were past their prime. And the idea of trying to put that lineup together, the fact that they somehow managed to win 83 and 84 games those years, um, that was pretty impressive. And um, yeah, I forget who said it last night too. Like the, the Yankees were operating this as almost a business venture from, from the point of standpoint of marketing Derek Jeter. Okay. You need to get Derek Jeter at bat in the first inning and put him in, 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 as many times as possible because at that point, it wasn't so much winning games. It was, it was, and look at the attendance figures. You know, they were there, they were there to see Derek. And that was kind of a weird crossing of, you know, strategically trying to win games versus pleasing the crowd. Um, you know, anytime he got a day off, it was, you know, there was, there were disappointed fans, but uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I'll take it back to the idea of, you know, uh, just, you know, the, the confidence has to be there for the player and it's up to somebody else to make that decision because the player is never going to believe that he can't keep doing it. He's always going to believe that he has that. That's what great players do. They always believe they're going to be great. Otherwise you see players who just walk away because they believe that they're not anymore. Yeah, that's like what Jeter said in, in the interview in the last episode. You know, he, my most recent self-evidence is 2012 when he was among the league leaders in hits. He had one of his best seasons. And I'll tell you another thing about that, Ryan, is that, you know, I, I've never seen a player like he had. He had probably the, the, the greatest ability I've ever seen of any, somebody to forget their last at bat and forget the last game. Um, and he, you know, goes four for four, goes over four. The next day is something completely different. Um, and that was that was the other thing that they're battling against because he had that unique ability to forget what happened. I mean, and you know, to, to that extent, you know, talking about two thousand nine, uh, Phil Hughes told me this story um, that after Game One of the World Series in two thousand nine when the Yankees got dominated by Cliff Lee, everybody's kind of down inside the clubhouse. There's got a lot of new people there that have not been to a world series have not been down one game to none um, in a world series. And it was kind of deflating, you know, the crowd it was out of it because it was a lopsided game and they got nothing going offensively against Cliff Lee. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh man, you know, this is the defending world series champions in Philadelphia and they're up one, nothing now. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen. And Jeter looked at some of these guys like Phil Hughes and Jabba Chamberlain, some of these younger guys who were playing in their first World Series. He looked at me and said, so what? So, so what? It's one game. We lost one game. So what? And Phil Hughes told me that the light bulb kind of went off for him then, that if Derek Jeter can say so what after losing a World Series game, then, you know, that tells you that, okay, it's not – that bad that you you know 
you can come back from this because it was a downer losing that game for those guys that uh, that they were not prepared for. So watching him react that way set a tone for the younger players who had not been there, and uh, and that kind of set them in the right direction again. And the the two thousand nine World Series was another part that stuck out to me with these two episodes is how Jeter kind of said it was just like a relief to be back. And I don't know, that, that kind of made me feel a, a little bit of sorrow for Jeter that he wasn't able to enjoy more of that on one for the thumb, as they call it, that fifth world series ring. But I guess that's just who Jeter is. Know, he was always, that was, I, I wouldn't feel sorry for him. I mean, I think he's, well, yeah, it. I know. It's just, I, you, you wish he, he gave us so much enjoyment in all these world series wins. You almost wish that he enjoyed it more himself in the moment, which, you know, he admits that he, he didn't as much uh, when he was winning all those world series. Cause it was immediately he about savor them. He, he enjoyed the moment like winning, like winning. I mean, look at any picture of him after one of these world series championships, you know, the smiles tell you everything he won. He enjoyed it. He, he didn't let it, he didn't let it last. Cause it was right. always dead. What's next. Gotcha. I th- I th- yeah. I think he said in an earlier episode, like took two weeks and then it was on, on to next year. And, guess that's what makes him such a great winner honestly that's how you get you know 3400 hits in in 20 years you know that's you know they're the um yeah that's what you do you know i mean it's it's hard it's very hard to put together good season after good season you know two years in a row let alone you know like eight or nine and you know that's that that's the way he dedicated himself to it just a, just a couple minutes left. Any other uh, highlights from these episodes that you guys want to point out? I thought it was great hearing some more extended interviews with Hannah Davis and just getting a look into what their relationship was like, especially dealing with someone as hyper-focused and competitive as Jeter, who was you know entering his career bottom at this point when this relationship really got going between the two because he had the injury and everything. So I thought it was really interesting to to hear from her and get her perspective on on what it was like but anything else stuck out to to you guys I mean for me just I don't know I always think back on on the end in 2012 I mean that's more or less kind of the the end in 2014 is like the the epilogue I guess but it it just it really hurt as a fan to to watch that and I think we were kind of talking before we started recording. I remember being at that game and you could hear a, a pin drop in that stadium and what at that point had been a crate. They came back, they were down by four in the ninth and they hit two, two run homers. And that place was just quiet. The rest of the game. It was, it was surreal. Yeah. I, I, I remember that one. And because you know, remember, like we said, 2012, he had a great year. Right. Um, and he's 38 at that time. He has a great year. And you know, there's, he finished with 3,400 hits because he lost basically all of 2013 and 2014 was, was, you know, uh, was basically the end. But if he's healthy through all that, you know, how much closer does he get to, you know, I I, I don't think he's getting to 4,000 or if he's getting to uh, getting to, you know, the Pete Rose or anything like that. But I always thought a number as, as he was healthy that season, I remember thinking that season in particular, because he was going so well, before he got hurt, I remember thinking a good number to reach was probably 3771, which is Hank Aaron's uh, career hit total, right? Um, and that puts him, you know, third all time. And then you're talking about only being behind Rose and Cobb. And I thought that was that was a realistic goal 
if you consider that he finished, what, 300 hits out after missing basically the entire season and sliding off after the ankle injury, it it's not it's it's a fairly realistic number to try to hit um for for where he was in 2012 um and the thing about that you know there the i've been in lots of yankees clubhouses when they lost postseason series i was there in 2001 and 2004 and some of these heartbreaking losses that you know you remember as yankees fans but i've never heard clubhouses as quiet well See, it wasn't the Jeter one, the Mariano one in Kansas City, uh, which is early. Let's not, let's not forget. That's the other thing about 2012. Let's remember, Mariano Rivera got injured in the summer of 2012. So now when Jeter goes down in game one of the ALCS, the Yankees are now playing the rest of that series with no Derek Jeter, no Mariano Rivera. And when was the last time they got to a World Series without either of them, right? Um, so that's what the Yankees are staring at in that moment. And um, so Jeter goes down and it wasn't as quiet a clubhouse as the Kansas city one, because mostly because the sheer number of people you're talking about a a playoff series, there was a lot more media and a lot more bustle. And, um, and that was happening uh, with, with that uh, game one of the ALCS in Kansas city. Uh, it was just a road series for the Yankees and a lot fewer people there. That was the quietest Yankees clubhouse that I ever saw the night Mariano got hurt and he came in crutches at the end of the night. Um, but, you know, back to 2012, you're talking about this idea that that they were going forward without these two stalwarts. And I remember Ichiro Suzuki telling me that one of the things he admired most about Derek Jeter was his his eternal optimism that there's always a game tomorrow. You know, this was the idea of you know, this was part of Jeter's curse of not enjoying the moment. He was always looking, there's a game tomorrow, there's a game tomorrow. And that was always enjoyment to him. Okay, I got a game tomorrow. And Ichiro said he saw Jeter in the trainer's room after that game with his leg up, knowing what the injury was. And he's looked at him and he said, I don't have a game tomorrow. And that was like the heartbreaking thing for Ichiro, that this optimism that he always carried with him was shattered uh, with that injury. And that, you know, it, it was on display for, for other people to see for the first time. Yeah, that was certainly heartbreaking, but we'll be back next week to talk about the finale and the uplifting end to Jeter's career. So Sweeney, thanks again for joining us. We'll be back next week to talk about the finale.